Welcome to the Windswept and Interesting Podcast. I'm Richard Baines. I'm all at sea this week with the estimable campaigner Nick Underdown from the marine environmental charity Open Seas. Nick is one of the straightest talking people in conservation. What's less well known perhaps about him is that he's a seriously good stone skimmer. Just a big fan of stone skimming. Why wouldn't you be? It's a, it's a great, uh, great, enjoyable thing to do and um, show of your, uh, your abilities. Just always skimmed stones ever since the World Stone Skimming Championship set up in Eastdale, made it my point to be there alongside some of the, the greatest skimmers that Scotland has produced. Some brilliant skimmers out there. But these guys can skim, you know, like 90 or 100 metres. I can skim maybe like 60 to 70 metres. Well, let's see you then. Come on, yeah. let's, let's have a demo. That was, in fact, an impressive shot that I couldn't come anywhere near. So that's the lighter side of the guy, but I wanted to know a lot more, such as why he says the Scottish government is promoting paper parks, with protection only on paper from harmful fishing practices. Why did he end up leaving a much-loved job on a local newspaper to become a campaigner? And what does he think of the controversial plans for highly protected marine areas in Scotland? When I went to meet Nick, he was in his office, tackling a particularly fiddly set of proposals from the Scottish Government. We walked down to the shore to get away from all that for our chat, but I know that that kind of complex issue is a big part of his work, so I rather annoyingly brought him right back to it. So I came into the office there, Nick, and you were deep in turmoil over something to do with Scottish Government with vessel tracking. So. Tell me about that. It's a really complicated, sort of fiddly bit of work that you're involved in. Yeah, the, the Scottish Government announced that they are going to try and roll out vessel tracking for the small-scale inshore fishing fleet across Scotland. Um, and that's generally quite a good good bit of news. Uh, vessel tracking is a really important tool to effectively manage the sustainability of fisheries. The more data you get in, the more you understand what you're taking in and out, sorry, what you're taking out of the sea and how to best manage uh, fish populations and the stocks that fishermen are targeting. Um, but the complex thing about this is that at the same time as announcing that uh, that set of proposals, the Scottish Government has also spectacularly decided not to progress other plans which they really should be uh, progressing and specifically vessel tracking for the uh, larger, larger scale parts of the fleet and specifically the, the bottom trawl vessels. So just, just explain to me, how does vessel tracking help to stop people doing bad fishing? Because you, you just know where they are, you don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to just be diplomatic here. Vessel tracking isn't about just stopping fishermen doing bad stuff. It's also to um, effectively manage fisheries. So if you know if you know where fish fishermen are operating, if you know how much fish is being taken out of a specific area, then you're able to manage those fish populations in a more sophisticated and well-informed way. So it's actually to help fishermen as much as any. And many fishermen are actually quite supportive of vessel tracking because they are aware that good data means that they will be able to manage their fish populations at a local level in a more sustainable way. But yes, you are right that vessel tracking is also about compliance and enforcement and to stop fishermen operating in either in places that they're not or maybe fishing in ways that is not sustainable or illegal for example. 
Right. So you you combine the data from the vessel tracking with data about what's being landed to know what's coming from where. That's right. Yeah. But although that requires quite uh, sophisticated forms of vessel tracking. So currently, the uh, you have a there is a requirement for all twelve meter or over boats in Scotland to have vessel tracking in place. But it's a very basic form of vessel tracking. All it really tells the government is that a vessel is operating in a specific place once every two hours. They basically a ping from that vessel once every two hours. And it doesn't really tell us government or fisheries managers anything further than that. It's a very basic form of vessel tracking. And one of the things that the Scottish government have been looking into is whether to improve that vessel tracking for larger vessels, um, uh, which would include uh, basically real-time monitoring. So you would know exactly where that vessel was at any given time, not just once every two hours. And also, crucially, that there would be cameras on board that vessel. That might sound very sort of big brother and sort of authoritarian, and in some senses it is, and is not. It's kind of a sad indictment on a society that we that we might need such a measure. But um, the sad fact is that in Scotland's fisheries, there is a high degree of bycatch within the trawl fishery. A lot of vessels are catching large quantities of fish that are not intended for uh, market, and they are then discarding those fish at sea. And the only way to really get on top of that problem is to have cameras on board to effectively manage the bycatch problem within our fisheries. Bycatch and, and discards, I thought they'd been done away with. Yeah, well, there was a, as you're right, there was a, there was a big campaign to try and end discarding, uh, you know, across Europe. Uh, you know, fishermen and conservationists were uh, aligned on this point about 10 to 15 years ago and all agreed that we do not want to continue wastefully dis- throwing away fish at sea. However... Uh, despite you know, European legislation introducing the landings obligation, which would basically make discarding illegal, there are quite a lot of derogations and exemptions to that rule, which means that discarding does actually continue. And not just that, that discarding also continues illegally in, in fisheries because there is no way to effectively monitor it. There is no, you know, if a, if a vessel is, you know, in the middle of the Clyde and it's dumping fish at sea, who is you know there's no system in place to be able to monitor and make sure that that's not happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so that's all a lot of complicated stuff and it's it's fairly typical of the kind of things you tell me about that you're doing and sometimes it's quite difficult for me to get a, a handle on what open seas your organization is so talk me through that so we're a, a smallish marine conservation organization operating primarily in scotland with a view to catalyzing change and improving the sustainability of our seas and specifically improving the management of our uh, fisheries um, we you know we stand for transparency we stand for improving improved decision making we stand for the environment but also sustainability for a for for, for our fishing industry um, we are we do research campaigns and investigations to try and make these changes there's been a huge for, for the last 10 15 years there's been some strides there's been well, there been some developments uh, but our view is that the, the changes that the Scottish Government are introducing are far too slow and not adequate to make our fisheries more sustainable you've got to rewind quite far back to understand why someone th- might think it'd be a good idea to have a conservation charity why, why do you have conservation charities in the world generally because governments don't do what they should do because it's difficult to engage with government processes. So 
the average member of the public is going to struggle to get on top of the Byzantine bureaucracy that spills out of governments to address sustainability challenges. Just the, st- the stuff we were talking about with the with the tracking, that's all tracking. Yeah, so yeah. you need, I think you need organisations like our own to grapple with the detail and to be a voice for the environment and not just the environment, we think we are a voice for actually marginalised voices within Scottish society who also want to see more sustainable fishing um, but find it difficult to wrestle with maybe more uh, institutional or um, well-resourced commercial interests that are quite effective at lobbying the Scottish Government. Uh, so we take it upon ourselves to try and represent those interests and, and champion sustainability. But sometimes dealing with that kind of complexity makes your brain hurt. Yeah, for sure, on a daily basis. <laughs> daily basis. So we touched there on the complexity of, of doing stuff with the Scottish Government. One of the things that the Scottish Government has done is brought in uh, marine protected areas. They boast something like 30% of Scottish waters, you'd probably correct me on that, are, are come under these marine protected areas. But you're, to say the least, a little bit sceptical about the protection that that allows, aren't you? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the Scottish Government uh, likes to say that 37% of Scotland's seas are protected. 37%, yeah. Um, but in reality, only a fraction of that volume of sea is protected from what most in the public would view to be damaging fishing methods uh, so that protection is in many cases just protection on paper only. Um, many of our many protected areas in Scotland's inshore waters for example don't have uh, any fisheries management measures in place and are what are known as paper parks uh, so they are really just protection uh, on paper only. But you can't build a wind farm in the middle of them without special permission. There's, 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 there's constraints on development there, aren't there? That's correct. So uh, it is one of the strange uh, idiosyncrasies of Scottish law that we have a licensing system, which means that marine, when, you, when you designate a marine protected area, all licensed activities, such as you have marine renewables, for example, um, oil and gas, they would have to, when proposing a development have to adhere to the conservation objectives of that particular MPA. However, fishing is a separate uh, issue and it requires separate legislation to deliver management for fishing. Um, that is just the way that the Scottish Government's... It's the way that the legal framework works. So even once you've got a, a marine protected area designated in place, it doesn't have any impact on what fishing can take place where in that particular marine protected area. Which many people will find kind of unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. really is. You know, so you, can have, you, you say this is an MPA, that's an MPA, but it, it means that scallop dredging in theory could be continuing to operate entirely legally inside one of those marine protected areas. And scallop dredging is one of the most damaging forms of, of, of fishing, um, with dragging stuff along the bottom of the sea, wrecking all that seabed environment and habitat. So, I mean, I would just rewind a bit it's important for us to note that the whole that Scotland's marine environment is in decline and I think by many different metrics and one of the main one of the main uh, things that is in decline is the condition of our seabed so many seabed habitats that you and I cannot see from above the surface here but that are nevertheless on the seabed are really important to the function of our marine ecosystem and they have been historically degraded by bottom-toed fisheries, of which scallop dredging is one. So scallop dredging is a method of fishing, as you say, which rakes 
heavy metal dredges across the seabed to target scallops and scallops alone. And the trouble is that when you're targeting those scallops, you are also impacting the condition of that seabed and in some cases dredging across fragile marine habitats that is just daft to be doing that now, nowadays. Um, and it, yeah, it's had a very destructive impact over successive generations now. So what should the Scottish Government be doing in these MPAs? Should it be gradually bringing in rules and regulations? How should it, how should it deal with that? It should just get on with the job of managing <laughs> MPAs. I yeah. mean, it really is, it is. It is quite a scandal that eight years ago we put in place a marine protected area network as a result of national legislation to protect and enhance the health of our seas. Enhance being the crucial word. Our seas have been basically really significantly impacted from decades of bad management. And we put these MPAs in to try and like recover their health. And then eight years later, after setting up those MPAs, we still do not have fisheries management for a, a good number of those MPAs. I mean, that is, I think that's just inexcusable. And I think the Scottish Government are completely asleep at the wheel. I think they are making statements publicly about, you know, 37% protected, which are designed to mislead the public. And I think that is really not healthy for our politics. And I think that we need to get more serious about marine protection. I think it's also fundamental for us to say that marine protection does not mean, uh, you know, nothing happens in that area. We are firmly supportive of sustainable, low-impact fishing that can continue to take place in MPAs, but we do not think that it's appropriate for scallop dredging and bottom trawling, some of the highest-impact methods of fishing, to, to continue to have the footprint they, that they do, and particularly inside marine-protected areas. So just how badly does he think the Scottish Government handled the HPMA debacle? Being Nick, he pulled no punches. Stay listening, we'll be back in one minute. You're very passionate about this, Nick. And one of the things I wanted to ask about is, is how did you get to be in this position, working for a small charity? What's your background? So I did a law degree uh, once upon a time, and then I did a postgrad in journalism. And the first job that I got as a, as a junior reporter was working for a start-up community newspaper on the Isle of Arran. And it was at that time that the Community of Arran Seabed Trust were... Uh, campaigning basically for protection mm. of Lamb Lash Bay which then went on to become Scotland's first no-take zone and as a young reporter I was you know, interviewing both the Community of Arran Seabed Trust uh, the Clyde Fishermen's Association and others within the community about you know, what, that, what that meant for that community and I just get really interested in the issue mm. I just think that and I saw I suppose how difficult it was for a community to try and take some form of responsibility and stewardship of their own seas. You know, this was the seabed on their doorsteps. They wanted to see it better protected so that fishing could thrive in the future. And it took so much effort from them. There was so much political resistance initially to that proposal. And as, a, as I say, as a, a local reporter, I just thought, my goodness, there is an issue here that needs to be resolved. If this is so hard for this particular community to get something done in its local area, you know, what is the situation in the, around the rest of Scotland? And I guess that just led me on a wee bit of a journey to, to get involved in marine conservation more broadly in, in the country. So was that as a volunteer first and then as a professional? Initially, I, yeah, I did. Um, I helped out uh, Coast with some newsletter writing uh -huh. um, and then I applied for a job at Scottish Environment Link 
uh, and worked as a marine policy and engagement officer All right. uh, for about four years before mm-hmm. starting with Open Seas. So how long were you with the, with the local newspaper? Uh, a couple of years. Do you good? Uh, it's a great source of sadness that I'm no longer in that role. I, I, I felt it was a real privilege to work uh, as a local reporter and all the knowledge that I gathered for those two years I wanted to continue building on and be a local reporter forevermore for that island to be honest. Um, so the the loss of the ability to do that was a, a big a big blow to me. But you gave that up because you thought the campaigning was more important. No, it was a very complicated story, Richard. I'm not <laughs> sure we've got time for in this. Right. But, um, but you ha- one way or another, you had to give that up. Yeah. yeah. The, the the newspaper went bust because ah. we were in competition with the Aaron Banner, uh, which became or re- resurrected itself. Uh, but the, yeah, the, basically there was a situation whereby the Aaron Banner. Um, lost its local um, touch and was edited remotely from Oban. And uh, we, the community, fundraised for a community newspaper to basically do better reporting on the island. And I, I was recruited as a as the local reporter for that community newspaper. But we we lost the advertising battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I mean, I'm I'm interested in that because, as you yeah. know, I started off on a weekly newspaper yeah. and I've managed to sustain one way or another a career in journalism for 40 odd years but it's bloody hard sometimes to stick with it when there's so many other things going on there's redundancies yeah. you, know, you have to be a slippery a slippery fish to, to get through it but no yeah well I think you need to be agile and resourceful and maybe do things at a time sometimes that you don't really want to do um just to stay in the game of reporting, I, I have written for the Daily Mail, Nick. You know, yeah. it's one of the one of those yeah. things you bite on the bullet. Maybe you are but, a slippery fish, then. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but but the point the point about Aaron and Coast, and obviously you've been working with Howard Wood there, um, brings me to the next sticky subject, which is the one that has been in the news this year that people will know quite a lot about, which is highly protected marine areas, uh, HPMAs. That's been a very interesting debate to watch from my point of view because on the one hand you've had basically something driven I think by the Green Party and Scottish Government to do a very intensive conservation area to ban the fishing that we were talking about in 10% of Scotland's seas but it's not met universal support from sustainable fishermen from conservationists because there was something wrong there wasn't there? They got something wrong. Yeah they got quite a lot wrong sadly. I mean the HPME uh, fiasco has been a very damaging episode in the journey towards more sustainable management of Scotland seas. Um, the Scottish government, you know, had the object the, the objectives to establish highly protected marine areas was laudable. If you look at the what the objectives were, they were to improve the health of our seas, to improve the community benefit from our seas, but. The, the devil was in the, the detail about how that was going to be achieved and I think that the main the main problem was that the, the, the figure of 10% was set out at the start and it, and so many hairs started running from that point onwards and many people, I think very legitimately, were fearful that these HPMAs were going to potentially be designated in areas where they currently work and live and fish in a pretty sustainable manner and they didn't see this as being potentially very fair, they were worried for the impact that this was going to have on their livelihoods and once that concern 
escalated, it became very, very difficult for the Scottish Government to kind of um, highlight the fact that these were just proposals at this stage, that they were looking to work in, in collaboration with the industry to identify these areas in a place that was, you know, kind of mutually agreeable. Um, but, you know, the damage had been done and, and a lot of people had come out, you know, very publicly to say, HBMAs are in principle a desperately bad thing. This is a disaster. This is going to be the death knell for our for our local community, um, and and I think that there was a lot of fear that led to those kind of statements being made. I think some of that fear, you know, hopefully in the fullness of time, may not come to pass, and that you know areas where we do have high levels of protection could be identified. Our position as as open seas is we think that the that community interests must be involved in the development and participate in the development of where any such measures would be introduced and that that also needs to respect the, the, the needs and the marginal business needs that uh, many small-scale inshore fishermen have got as well. So if, if anyone's going to lose ground as a result of these proposals, they need to be somehow compensated for that. I mean, I, we don't really like to talk in terms of compensation, but, you know, if... if there needs to be an equitable way that, that those measures are introduced uh, that does not basically harm the very businesses that we need to actually be respecting and looking after. You know, we've got a very, very complex fishing industry. Some parts of the industry work in quite a sustainable manner and other parts of the industry are having quite an unsustainable impact on the marine environment. We should not be... We should be incentivising low-impact methods of fishing. We should not be putting undue pressure on them through measures like HPMAs before we have done the basics of marine conservation in the first place. It all sounded like too much stick and not enough carrot to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that would be a fair, yeah. a fair point. So, um, marine conservation methods, controlling fishing, all very well, but how do we deal with the fishermen who are making a living out of that? How do we, how do we help them if their livings suffer from this? Yeah, so I mean, we would like to think that many people would, and, and the industry itself would benefit from uh, in the environmental recovery from these measures. So if you're, if, you, if you're putting in measures to recover fish populations, that is good news for fishermen. But you're 100% right that there is, and this is the absolute nub and thorny issue that is not being well addressed right now, which is what do you do for fishermen who are impacted in the shore and maybe mid-term from measures that restrict their activities, for example, in the inshore seas. And our view is that that's government's job. The government have got to take a lead on that issue. And industry have also got to take a lead on that issue. So if industry can see that you know their activities are not currently sustainable, they, our view is that they need to take a, a, a lead on developing those measures. They need to say to government, look, we can see the writings on the wall for us. We we, we accept our uh, our current footprint is not a sustainable footprint, but this is how we plan to like how how we plan to deal with it. That is called just transition, you know that. And, and fundamentally, just transition requires the active participation and leadership from affected parts of industry. At the moment, sadly, you know, there is quite a lot of refusal to engage with the impacts of high impact methods of fishing in Scotland so it's very difficult to have those conversations but we, we need to have those conversations societally if we're going to make change um, 
our view is that you know we should not be imposing these measures arbitrarily on commercial businesses. Commercial businesses obviously you know, support local communities. You cannot just switch something off. You you, you need to have a plan for how uh, measures are introduced. But the only people that can do that effectively are go- is government. And like government really needs to step up to that and get their house together, get their house in order in terms of uh, how just transition is delivered. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like it, share it. And if you want to give me feedback, you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn and on the weird, rather damaged social media network, formerly known as Twitter, where I am at Scott Nature Corps.